Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Kirsty Williams served for 22 years in the Senedd, representing Brecon and Radler. For much of that time, she was leader of the Welsh Liberal Democrats, the first woman to lead one of the four main political parties in Wales. Between 2016 and 2021, she was Minister for Education, leading a national mission of education reform. She retired from frontline politics in May 2021 and now chairs the advisory board of the International Learning Exchange Programme, Wales replacement for Erasmus+, and a member of the Welsh Government's Commission on the Constitutional Future of Wales. Kirsty joins myself and Richard Martin tonight to reflect on her time at the top table of Welsh politics and the state of Wales in these turbulent times. Good evening, Kirsty. Good evening, Shumai. We invited you on tonight to talk all things Brecon and Radnor, the beating heart of Welsh politics. But really, they say a week is a long time in politics, and what a week we have just had. You haven't been asked to join us to talk about Westminster, but we can't let the recent week's events pass without comment. Have you got a take you want to share with us on what you've seen in the past week and what we can expect? Well, I think everybody would agree that what we have witnessed is quite extraordinary. The future is very uncertain. And for me, whilst some observers and some practitioners might see that this leads to a political advantage for their particular point of view, what worries me the most is that this is a further nail in the coffin of the concept of trust between voters and their politicians and actually damages the relationship between those that are governed and those that seek to govern. Uh, and that's got to be bad for politics of all colours and all stripes. Yeah, I think that's a really good take. I don't think it was a, a high level of trust even before the past week, but uh, we're certainly plumbing new debts. Where do you think this current chaos began? Do you think it was 2016 and Brexit, or is it a far more recent development of the characters we've got at frontline politics at the moment? Undoubtedly, the referendum uh, on membership of the European Union certainly has unleashed something in UK uh, politics. But I think perhaps what that overshadowed was uh, deep divisions across political divide, actually, about attitudes towards the European Union. Clearly, within the Conservative Party, a, a view of wanting to leave but fault uh, on behalf of other political parties, you know, as someone that was obviously heavily involved in Liberal Democrat politics, a failure on our behalf to continue to make the case for membership of the European Union for many, 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 many years. So, you know, not making it, you know, a core part publicly of our campaigning, something that we believed in, but we believed in it quietly until perhaps it was too late to, to advocate uh, for, those, uh, for those views. I think it also demonstrates as well that for all political parties, they're a broad church. They contain, you know, people with, um, you know, with different views even within a political party. And from time to time, you know, those divisions within political parties become untenable. And perhaps the governing party finds itself uh, in that situation in the way pl other political parties have found themselves in that trouble you know, throughout their history. So, but I think, as I said, for me, the consequences are, I believe, uh, a further further division between, as I said, the electorate and those that seek to, to govern. And I think it'll, let, it'll lead to less people wanting to participate in politics, either as practitioners themselves or as people who actually go out to vote because they think the voting will make a fundamental difference to, to their lives. I think that's exactly it, and it's, it's a really nice to have that kind of honesty on where the Leave campaign, uh, the Remain campaign was, really. But that's enough about Westminster and Brexit. So if we go back to the Senedd, and you, you served from the start of the Senedd, right from the very beginning of devolution. I think you were even pre that part, and you were part of the advisory committee on establishing the Assembly, as it was then. How did that come about, and how did the little Nettley girl end up serving the constituents of Brecon and Radnor? Oh my goodness, well it's um, probably a, a very long and boring tale to most people but uh, I joined uh, the precursor of the Liberal Democrats uh, back in school and uh, perhaps 
it all lays at the feet of my history and politics teacher at my school in Llanelli. And uh, the first lesson we did in my politics A-level was on electoral systems. And I thought to myself, well, this is a terrible way to go about electing a government. And then the second lesson that we did was on the House of Lords. And I was even more outraged about how an unelected chamber could be part of, 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 of a government. Uh, so I guess that's where it started for me. Ended up uh, a member of the National Assembly Advisory Group. Again, was a massive shock. You know, I was involved in the uh, referendum campaign out and about delivering leaflets, you know, going to events, speaking at events, uh, very active uh, in that. And during that time, I was asked to make a short film for the BBC on why people should vote yes. And during the process of making that film, I uh, met Ron Davis, the then Secretary of State for Wales. And after the referendum, I received a phone call in work from Ron Davis's special advisor to tell me that the Secretary of State was going to ring me. Uh, later that afternoon and to invite me to be a member of the National Assembly Advisory Group. And initially I thought it was a prank. I thought somebody was pranking me, but that call did come and I was, you know, thrilled and delighted. Uh, my party at that time was less thrilled and delighted. And in fact, um, they approached Ron Davis and said, no, you can't have her. You have to have this person. And fair play to Ron Davis. He said, well, you either have her or you have nobody at all. Uh, so, um, uh, so I was uh, very fortunate to have that uh, opportunity, and uh, and then from that moment on, was just determined to uh, play a part in that National Assembly for Wales, and uh, made an application to be the candidate in Brecon and Radnor. I remember being very, very earnest and travelling up to Westminster to inform the then MP for Brecon and Radnor it was my intention to seek the nomination and. He turned to me and he said, oh, you don't want to do that, dear. And I said, why wouldn't I want to do that? And he said, oh, no, no, no. We've already decided who the candidate for Brecon and Radnor should be. And I was outraged because I said, well, you haven't gone through the process. And he said, no, no, but we know who the candidate is going to be. Why don't you go to Bridgend, he said. And I said, well, well why would I want to go to Bridgend? And he said, oh, I think you could do very well in Bridgend. And I said, I'm going to lose in Bridgend. And I don't want to lose. So as it turned out, armed with a significant number of ordinance survey maps and a membership list and the goodwill of the Liberal Democrat members of Brecon and Radnor, I was successful in gaining that nomination. And that was the beginning of an amazing 20 plus years of service uh, at the Assembly, latterly the Senate. And um, I'm very fortunate, very, very fortunate to have had that opportunity. Kerry and I are, are, are racking our brains now. Political knowledge doesn't go that deep. We're trying to figure out who the MPs are in these circumstances. It was Richard Livesey was the MP at the time. Wow. OK. I mean, you, you touched on Ron Davis there. What was your interpretation at the time? Because he was juggling a very complicated party process within the Labour Party and obviously reaching out to other parties or itself wasn't particularly popular among parts of the Labour Party at the time as well. So, you know, at the time, what were your kind of impressions of that process and how it was coming about? Did it feel momentous or did it feel like it was just something that the, the Labour Party was going through the motions of? Um, I'm kind of curious because you were kind of integral, but also a little bit of an outsider from a different political party. Sure. So I don't think, as you said, we should underestimate the difficulties that Ron Davis had in delivering, first of all, you know, delivering a referendum. I mean, if you look back on the papers now, you know, Blair wins in 97 and there is an absolute groundswell in that administration not to touch constitutional reform with a barge pole. You know, I think there are papers, aren't there, with Jack Straw saying, you know, we haven't waited this many years to have a Labour government for you then to faff around with constitutional reform and you could leave it to later in the Parliament. And I think, you know, it would never have happened if it had been left to later in that particular uh, Parliament. So, you know, I just think you have to give credit where credit is due, is that, you know, Blair made good on those commitments, but uh, as always uh, in the story of devolution, I think it's fair to say devolution only moves as quickly as the Labour Party is prepared to move. But that's about the politics, the art of the possible, isn't it? And you should never let perfect be the enemy of the good. And, you know, I've certainly, and others across the political spectrum that were in favour 
of devolution. There's that this was the beginning of, of of a step forward that would hopefully then build some momentum. And I think Ron Davis, you know, had a very difficult juggling act to manage his own MPs as well as then the expectations of those of us that wanted to push further and faster. But those discussions you know, were, were fascinating to be a part of. And of course, actually, our recommendations didn't stand the test of time because, you know, the advisory group alongside Ron Davis came up with this idea of a corporate body. And of course, you know, when it came to the practicalities of delivering on devolution, that corporate body was found wanting in different ways and didn't, didn't uh, stand the test of time. We forget now, over 20 years ago, but it, it's the first few years were a little bit turbulent and it really did take uh, the Lib Dems coming into coalition in that first assembly to give a bit of stability into early Labour, a little bit of, a, I'm not saying infighting, but the Alan Michael to Roger Morgan handover. It wasn't an auspicious start until um, that first coalition really took the rest of the assembly forward. Have you got any memories of that first coalition? Well, I think you're right. I think we were all very conscious that... We had to demonstrate to everybody in Wales, but particularly the near majority of people who hadn't wanted the institution to be established in the first place, that it was worth having. And I guess, you know, we're back to the watchword of this last week, aren't we, about instability and what instability communicates to members of the public. And that was certainly part of the forefront of Liberal Democrat minds. Uh, when we were thinking about whether to join that coalition or not. And I think, you know, there is also another point, there's another Rubicon that, that sometimes happens in politics, is that at some point the public or your colleagues just stop listening. Uh, and that happened to, you know, to John, to John Major uh, after the Black Wednesday. I think you could point to that to Gordon Brown when he called off the election that never was certainly happened to the Liberal Democrats after tuition fees. It doesn't matter what happens after that point. The public has just stopped listening to you. They're not prepared, you know, to give you uh, their, their ear. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, I think a point had been reached at that particular moment for the then leadership of Ali Michael, where that was a real danger point for the future of that institution, a real, real danger point. And I'm very glad that the Washington Democrats played their part at that moment of, of providing that stable government going forward in that crucial first term. Yeah, I, I think it was very much needed. It was very different times. And uh, I think history will reflect on that, that that stability was really, really needed during that handover period. Second Assembly term, it was a, it was a Labour majority. You eventually became leader late in the noughties and then were involved in one of the Welsh politics, Welsh devolution's most intriguing episodes, the possibility of a rainbow coalition or not. You know, we, we are going back into the past here, but it's interesting. You, you, you're such a, um, you've been throughout devolution, so you've got the knowledge on these periods and you were involved in the rainbow co coalition or not. Can you talk us through what happened there? What, what might have happened? If you don't mind me saying, you've kind of got your dates mixed up. So I wasn't a leader at that point um, when the... Rainbow Coalition was a possibility. I think for me, it is first of all about, again, about the, the ability to provide stable government uh, and a government that will be able to act and, and do things to improve the lives of people of Wales. And I think the important thing to note about party collaboration, the stuff that you can agree on on paper and the programmes of governments or the progressive agreements, whatever title, you know, parties come up with, that's the easy bit. The fact that you've been able to get them down on a piece of paper demonstrates to you that that's the easy bit. The hard bit, the stuff that you can't agree on, is left out. And people hope that somehow, at some point, those issues will be addressed. And you certainly can't take into consideration events. So you can't plan ahead, you know, for what might you know, unfold during the term of that office. And I think to be able to provide stable government in those circumstances, you have to have a basis of at least a shared set of values. You know, if you think of a Venn diagram, you know, a reasonable crossover of a shared set of values 
and instinctively how you might approach trouble when trouble comes and inevitably trouble does come. And I just felt that the Rainbow Coalition, which looked to marry the values of Plaid Cymru, the values of the Welsh Liberal Democrats and the values of the Conservative Party were, were not one would be able to provide that stable, impactful government for that uh, term and subsequently uh, voted in the way that I, that I did. Uh, in doing so, uh, I did so not in the belief for a moment that that would mean that it did not progress, but I felt at that time it was the only thing that I felt was the right was the right thing uh, to do. Uh, there was enough people that shared my view, and obviously, Clyde Cymru and the Labour Party made then a different uh, a different decision. But uh, I stand by that, and I I don't have any regrets. If someone were to walk into the Senate chamber tomorrow, and suggest that the Liberal Democrats, Plaid Cymru and the Conservatives should form a government together, they'd be laughed out of the room. It's quite extraordinary to think how much uh, has changed in the time since that, you know, what is probably the great sliding doors moment in devolution at that period. I mean, people still talk about it, both from the Conservative and Plaid Cymru sides and Liberal Democrat sides, but also the Labour Party are very fond of reminding people that there was nearly a rainbow coalition because it proves a useful campaigning tool. Just wondering how you kind of reflect on that idea of parties that wouldn't naturally come together, being able to come together, because you've played a part in so many of these, actually, these moments where not only there was the Rainbow Coalition and the early days of the Senate, but also then you were representing Wales during the um, Lib Dem Conservative Coalition in Westminster. And I remember you talking to Wales cast last year, I think it was um, quite clearly about your opinions on that. But of course, you know, even even as we are now, you know, we've we've had various kind of peculiar quasi coalitions from Welsh governments to keep their uh, agenda alive. And I'm just wondering, you know, kind of how you feel the almost like the atmosphere or the appetite is for that and and why perhaps we seem to find it easier in Scotland and Wales, um, although not so much recently in Scotland, but it seems to still be incredibly toxic in Westminster to do that kind of cross-party thing. Well, first of all, I would say you're right. You know, in many ways, people would look at a rainbow coalition in the current setup and think that was very unlikely, but actually it's not that long ago in 2016, when people were criticising me for, you know, the fact that there could have been a Leanne Wood, UK, Tory kind of deal, which is even more extraordinary, I think, personally, <laughs> at that particular moment, you know, but, you know, that's even pushing it even further, isn't there, about having that Venn diagram where you can have a crossover of certain values and approaches to life. So it's not that long ago, really, when you think about it. But I think, what's the difference? I think necessity is the difference. The way the electoral system works in Wales, you know, is that it has created that necessity and that mindset where political parties do have to think about working in a different way. Uh, otherwise, you know, they couldn't, the Labour Party couldn't, wouldn't have been able to stay in power or wouldn't be able to move forward on its agenda. Uh, whereas, of course, that's not the case in Westminster. I mean, you think, don't you, about 97 and the Blair-Ashdown discussions prior to 97 and the fact that there was some, you know, they they talked privately about what an administration, what a government might look like, the role the Liberal Democrats may or may not play in that. But when it came to it, the majority was so bled, Tony Blair didn't need to pick up the phone to Paddy Ashton at all and you know all of those careful discussions beforehand were you know uh, went out the window because the necessity wasn't there so I think that's the difference really is that you know the electorate system and the electorate have have sent senators back that have necessitated the need for political parties to work in that way and I think that's the that's the key difference which we'll see if there was ever a change uh, in the electoral system at Westminster, whether that culture would develop, who knows? That that if was doing an awful lot of heavy lifting in that sense. <laughs> I can't believe I'd forgotten about the 2016. Again, I know 
the team at Walescast asked you a lot about that. But just before Kerry picks up, I'm sure he's going to want to ask you about your time in government any moment now. But how do you reflect on that 2016 moment? Because you were literally, this is again, you were right at a sliding doors moment in, in Welsh politics. If you'd been ill that day or you'd not been present in, in the chamber, it would have been a very, very, very different um, Senate term. How, how do you look back on that now? Do you think do you think it was do you think it was a, a mistake by Ply Cymru to even get into that position or do you think that was just you know it was fair game they were trying to kind of seize you know seize control in a way of of the the agenda in the senate at the start of that senate term i don't think it was a mistake i think there is a you know very logical uh, rationale and intent behind uh, behind that but it's really interesting Somebody liked a tweet that I had tweeted at the time just last week. So somebody must be clearly, I don't know, crawling back from my Twitter feed. And, you know, I just did not think that that proposition offered one of staple government. And if you're a proponent of proportional representation, I think it's incumbent upon you then to look at cooperating, working with uh, other political parties to provide government and I don't think anybody anybody would thank you for walking away from those responsibilities and I've spent a lot of time in the last week or so thinking about that meeting in London that discussed whether the Liberal Democrats join a coalition with the Tories at that time and as you say I've never been particularly shy about talking about my severe misgivings about that time probably the, the toughest time of my political life. But the irony is that morning we spent a huge amount of time because, of course, if you remember, we were in an economic crisis at that particular time in British history. And we spent, and I'm sure people will say that I'm making it up, but I can assure you, we spent a huge amount of time that morning discussing what would happen to the markets if there was not a stable government. And would we be blamed as a party that having had this opportunity to form a stable government, we would walk away and throw the economy to the markets and what that would mean for people's mortgage rates? I mean, it seems absolutely ironic to me, but, you know, we spent a lot of time that morning thinking about those kinds of issues and the responsibilities that, you know, sometimes land at your feet. And the question is whether you pick them up and you act or whether you walk away. And, and certainly walking away is the easiest thing to do. I've, I've learned that. I've spent a lot of time on the op- opposition benches and I've spent time actively myself being part of the government or having to support a government. And I can tell you opposition is a lot easier. I think I think we have all forgotten, obviously you haven't, Kirsty, but I think a lot of us have forgotten the, the UKIP years in, in the Senate, difficult times. But um, that Rainbow Coalition aside now, that didn't happen. I think it was an intriguing part of the, the, the evolution process. And as Rich said, I, it, it's unthinkable to happen uh, at the moment. But the Welsh, the Dems didn't go into that particular coalition. But then a few years later, the UK level of Liberal Democrats went into coalition with the Conservatives in Westminster. Can you reflect on that decision now? And, you know, it provided the stability we just talked about, obviously, but... It also, I think it's fair to say, it did harm the Lib Dems as a political force across the UK, which they're still rebuilding on. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think, firstly, a lot of Lib Dem voters simply could not reconcile themselves with their vote then leading to that dis- decision. And I think if a political party does something which a lot of voters think is a vote fast on what they were promising in the election. I think that is very, very challenging to overcome. But I think there was probably enough people that were willing to, you know, that were understanding enough to think that, yeah, we needed a government and would give us the benefit of the doubt for for stepping up. But then I think, you know, some of the decisions that were made in that that government simply led to a situation where people were not willing to listen to anything the Liberal Democrats uh, had to say, and I think, you know, obviously tuition fees was that moment, was absolutely that moment where where we had been absolutely clear about what we said before the election uh, and then did something absolutely contrary uh, t- to that. And that was hugely, hugely damaging. I mean, there were lots of other things, I'm sure, that people would point to, but I think, you know, that, that one particular decision and 
I just think that one of the challenges for smaller parties and coalitions, and I'm still not convinced that any political party has, has cracked it yet, either in the experience in Scotland, when there have been coalitions since the beginning of devolution, obviously not, not so much recently, but uh, the coalition between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, and indeed coalitions in the Senate, is how do you, from a party political perspective, how do you survive that experience? Not only how do you survive it and not get absolutely hammered like the Liberal Democrats did, but actually how do you thrive on that? And I just think, in, in my opinion, no political party has figured out how to do coalition as the smaller partner in that, in those arrangements and to, as I said, you know, uh, avoid being electorally damaged or indeed using that as a position to, you know, increase support. I don't think anybody's cracked that yet. No, it was difficult times, but I often reflect at the moment and what we're talking around in current Westminster that as part of that coalition agreement, there was the referendum on the alternative vote approach and how if that had gone a different way, where we might be in the past decade. But we won't reflect on that any longer. I think, you know, when the dust settled and Wales went back to the polls, the Welsh Lib Dems did find themselves in a hole in the Senate. But I think you were rewarded by your dedication to BNR, by being returned as the sole Lib Dem. And, um, but you were able to then push a Lib Dem agenda still, like what you just uh, alluded to in earlier answers, and return to government as education minister. And, uh, you know, one of the most important posts in government for me, despite being that lone Lib Dem, it was a successful one, really, for yourself and uh, the party and what you achieved, wasn't it? Well, it's for others to judge, but... Personally, I think, you know, considering that we had one single member of that Senate, we were probably a bit cheeky, really, in being able to <laughs> enact uh, Liberal Democrat policies, not just in the education sphere, but actually in other parts of the government as well, um, probably disproportionate uh, to, the, um, to the size of the group, uh, you might say. Uh, but it was um, an opportunity to put into place uh, Liberal Democrat uh, values and liberal democrat policies and um i i was very fortunate uh, to have had that uh, opportunity very fortunate in, uh, indeed i think it's fair to say you know one of the the big successes which is just beginning to roll out now was the the new welsh curriculum which is a ma major milestone i think of your period as education minister are you happy with the progress that you're seeing from that now you're not in office oh my goodness I was very fortunate uh, in that the predecessor, my predecessor used to, it was absolutely assiduous and never commenting on education matters when I was the education minister. And I promised that when I left office, I, I would do the same. But I, but I have to say, you know, I'm not in schools like I was anymore, but I'm a parent still with children in the Welsh education system, which does mean that I do, you know, certainly go to my um, daughter's high school and, when I discussed with the head teacher there, you know, the opportunities uh, for the curriculum, and now when I sit doing some of the other things that I do, and I hear people talk positively about the opportunities the curriculum affords them, then I feel I feel really proud. And I recently met uh, the Three Dads Walking. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of their campaign. These are three gentlemen from England who have lost their daughters uh, to suicide. And uh, for the last couple of years, they have been, you know, out uh, walking to highlight uh, suicide and and to campaign for suicide uh, awareness to be included in the curriculum. And I recently met them and was able to explain to them about how we have the health and well-being AOLE and we have the whole school approach to mental health in Wales. And I was just so proud to be able to talk to them about that. And they were just bowled over and they were just like oh well this is exactly you know what we've been uh, we've been calling for so I think there are really really great opportunities it's not without its challenges at all especially you know trying to roll out the curriculum with all the challenges that schools face post the pandemic but I, I think you know there's a real opportunity uh, for the Welsh education system and for those that work in it to be empowered and to be given the professional freedom to teach you know, a curriculum that is relevant to the children in front of them and a real opportunity for our children to gain the experiences, the skills and the knowledge to help them be, 
you know, successful adults. And, and that's the key to a successful mission, I would argue. One of your current roles, which you may have alluded to earlier, um, was um, your role as chair of the board of Tithe, which is Welsh Government's I'm going to I'm going to use some really lazy shorthand. Sorry, it's the Welsh government's attempt to sort of fill the hole and maybe expand on the opportunities that were previously covered by the European Union Erasmus Plus scheme. The UK government has also got the Turing scheme, which is another sort of attempt at a similar kind of to to, to plug a, a similar kind of gap. And how would you how has your experience of that scheme been? I appreciate it's very new. But what is the what is the progress that we're making in that regard in Wales, and how have young people reacted to the opportunities? I'm really proud of the of the Tithe team. Uh, when you consider the relatively short timescales that have been involved to go from the idea of, of Tithe uh, and wanting to safeguard and uh, and expand upon the opportunities for international. Uh, education mobility for both students and staff to the fact that we've got money going out the door to successful projects I, I think it's a testament to the collective effort in Wales uh, to get the scheme up and running uh, and working and we've been really pleased uh, with our first core so um, pathway one projects which are traditional forms of education mobility. You know, we've had a fantastic response from all aspects uh, of, of, of education. It's really important to note that uh, this covers universities, not just universities as in teaching, but also there's a pot of money for research uh, because we know international research is really important to our higher education sector, through to youth groups, uh, you know, informal education settings, uh, through to vocational students, adult education. So we've been we've been really really pleased with the uh, with the response uh, so far. So if you're listening to this, then please be aware that uh, pathway two uh, applications are open at the moment, and they will be through to the beginning of December. And if you're in further education or vocational education, there is also an opportunity to rebid uh, for pathway one. Again, that's open until December. So the programme is up and running. There's a wealth of information and advice out there if you're interested in providing, you know, international opportunities for staff and students. I'm going to ask a slightly tricky question just to follow up. As I understand it, Tithe yeah, is uh, funded for the remainder of this Seneth term. Uh, what soundings, if any, have you had from parties that the parties that might uh, form future governments in Wales to suggest that a similar type of scheme might continue into the future? Is this something that is going to become a fixture of the Welsh education landscape for some time, or is this something that may last the duration of a Senate term? I hope that we make sure that Tithe is so successful in this first iteration that it will become untouchable uh, and that it will demonstrate its worth to, to, to everybody in Wales as something that is really, really valuable uh, to Wales. Uh, and that's the challenge to us. It's for us to demonstrate good value for money um, for us to demonstrate what these experiences bring uh, to individuals and to the system uh, as a whole. So the challenge is to us, actually, to, to prove its worth and to make it so successful that nobody would dare uh, suggest uh, bringing it to an end. I think that brings us on to one of your other hats you wear, Kirsty, on the, the Wales Constitutional Commission. Could you put in your own words what the aim of the Constitution Commission is? The way I see the Commission is for a group of people to do all the research, interrogation of evidence, some of the thinking, and then to present to the people of Wales uh, options for their future governance. And options with the upsides and downsides, the pros and cons of all those options laid bare so that the people of Wales can then for themselves decide how they want to be governed in the future. But they'll be able to make that decision on the basis of evidence and of facts and of clear information without spin. Have you been surprised by anything which has come forward from the Commission at all? You know, I don't, I don't know what your preconceptions of it might have been, but 
Is there anything that come to your attention which you're able to share which has been a, of interest? Well, what's been what's been really interesting is uh, I think that I've been pleasantly surprised by how many people have wanted to give their their views. I think sometimes when you in, in, embark on an endeavour such as this, quite rightly, the argument is thrown at you, well, there are more important things going on in the world. And certainly in the middle of a cost of living crisis, with war on the European continent, once again, you know, there are many, many, many things in this world that are that are worrying people. And perhaps constitutional change is very far down uh, the list. But actually, I've been very uh, encouraged by the desire of people to be able to have their say for good and for bad, you know, and to put their ideas forward and many of them being very sophisticated in their arguments and about linking constitutional change to the ability or the inability to make a difference in people's lives. So they see the connection. They don't see it's tackling the cost of living crisis versus tackling constitutional change. Actually, they see constitutional change as a way of, you know, being able to make an impact on the, you know, the very real difficulties that people are experiencing. You mentioned earlier on that uh, the early days of the National Assembly, the conception of the National Assembly took place in the context of uh, devolution only moving as fast as the Labour Party is willing to do so, and that the Blair government, when it came in in 97, was not chomping at the bit to address constitutional issues after a long period of Conservative rule. And here we are again, potentially or very likely coming to the end of a long period of Conservative rule in Westminster and a Labour Party looking increasingly like a government in waiting. And much has been made of the Gordon Brown review that it has been ongoing and the presentations that have been made to the Labour Party on by Gordon Brown and Mark Drakeford as First Minister and Leader of Welsh Labour has suggested on a number of occasions that he's had considerable input into the, those proposals. I was just wondering, you know, what likelihood do you think that a change of government in Westminster would lead to a perhaps a greater chance of constitutional change being affected? And I think one of the questions that we we, we we've asked James Dodds in the in the past, I think in the run up to the Senate election last year, what what's the Liberal Democrat prospectus here. You know, the, the Lib Dems have the uh, are known for being the fed, only significant federal party on Britain, and you know, is is there a, a something similar to the Gordon Brown review within the Liberal Democrat Party? Is that something that the party even thinks about? I I think we'd probably be curious to know any and all thoughts you have in that regard. Uh, well, I'll let uh, Jane Dodd speak for uh, the Welsh Liberal Democrats, but obviously the Commission has taken or uh, offered the invitation to all political parties in Wales uh, to, you know, uh, to come forward with their evidence. And I was very pleased that uh, Jane Dodds and the Welsh Liberal Democrats have taken advantage of the opportunity to, uh, to do that. I think what's important about the Commission is that it's an opportunity for people in Wales to have their say, because for too often, I think in the past, constitutional change and the debate around it has, has not been a debate that the Welsh people have had. It's been reactive rather than proactive. It has been kind of not handed to us, but, you know, this, you know, we haven't been active participants in a way that I think citizens should be active participants in the future uh, of their own country. And, you know, the Gordon Brown work, I'm sure, is, is very important and will be important in shaping a certain political party's offer at the next, next election. But the Commission sits outside of that party political process and is an opportunity for everybody in Wales, regardless of their political persuasion, to be able to have the, the space and the, uh, and the opportunity to express those views. And I think, I think it's also really important to, to recognise that, you know, I'm interested, of course I am, in, in relationships between Welsh governments uh, and Westminster governments, but you know, the Commission is also charged in looking at a, 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 a political culture that I, I think all of us perhaps would agree that, that needs attention within Wales uh, as well. So it's not just, you know, I think a constitutional commission that is looking simply at who does what, at which end of the M4, but actually 
you know, how do you create a really engaging political culture supported by institutions and, and powers that is that is one where people, not just in the debate about a commission, but an ongoing basis, feel that they have they are living in a democracy that is worthwhile participating in. And I think that's just as valuable as the debate about who does what where. Absolutely the case. And we have a we have a, a very, very, very very long gestating project about the St David's Day Agreement, with during which we've spoken to most of, uh, excluding yourself actually, I'm slightly embarrassed about that, um, <laughs> we've spoken to your Lib Dem colleague Mark Williams and many of the MPs and members of the Senate about that St David's Day Agreement and that of course was you know, led entirely by people at the far end of the M4 and certainly you know, as the stories that have been regaled to us about those discussions, the Welsh Party as, um, were sometimes overruled in those circumstances by their colleagues down the other end of the M4. Um, you know, the, the idea that the people of Wales uh, actually own more of that process inside Wales is actually, you know, quite a revolutionary thought. So I suppose, uh, you know, particularly as you are, I think, approximately one year in and we're expecting an interim report, I should throw the ball to you to be able to um, knock it back with a pitch for how people who have not yet engaged in the Commission's work should do so. Well, you're right. We're heading to the point where we are uh, required by the uh, the Welsh Government to publish an interim report, and that will uh, happen uh, before Christmas of this year. And that will be a staging post uh, for where we've got to at the moment, uh, but also a jumping off point for the next stage of our work. So absolutely, this is not just uh, a process well if you haven't told us now what you think that's it you haven't had an opportunity haven't got the opportunity there's mechanisms on the on the website presence uh, to be able to continue to 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 have that di- dialogue with us and I think that's what's really important to the commission is that for too often as I said the constitutional arrangements of Wales have been talked about and decided in other places and we want the commission uh, to provide an opportunity for Wales to be at the forefront of those discussions. And I think, um, you know, also for me, I think, and we'll wait to see whether this happens, it's really important to be able to, as I said earlier, without spin, present potential options, you know, and the advantages and disadvantages, because I think we're all kidding ourselves if we think there is one perfect solution to the answer of how should Wales be governed you know and if there was to be in the future and I'm just guessing please don't read anything into this but you know if there was to be in the future a referendum on proposals for change I want people of Wales to be able to engage in that debate on the basis of fact and not on the basis of of promises which undoubtedly the campaigns on either side will make and the accusations that they will throw and i i hope that we can you know lay out quite clearly what op- what options there may be and you know and the challenges and the advantages of working with those options so that people know what they're getting into in a way i would argue that perhaps people weren't presented with back in the eu referendum i'm going to draw us to a close shortly kirsty but i think it's only right and proper that we have a little exploration of Brecon and Radnor while we've got you here. You've served the constituency so well for so long. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are of the the future of the constituency. I'm trying to get my head around the boundary commission changes. I wasn't expecting to keep so much and extend into the Swansea Valley, but that's the way we're going. But, you know, where do do you see the constituency now with all the changes that have happened since, since Brexit, really? Gosh, I feel a huge amount of sympathy for future members of that new constituency because boy oh boy it's tough to get rec- around Brecon and Radnor as it is uh, to make it even larger so uh, my heart goes out to whoever the future representatives of the new of the, of the new boundaries would be because as I said it just makes the constituency even uh, even bigger and it's quite a challenge geographically anyway so we'll wait to see it's an interesting proposal to go uh, further to go further south. I don't know how uh, the people in the upper Swansea Valley 
obviously some of the people in the Upper Swansea Valley are already in the constituency. I'm not sure how they will feel about coming into the constituency, but clearly it uh, potentially changes, you know, some of the, the, the makeup of that constituency where the balance of influence in that constituency will be historical voting patterns. Uh, but yeah, I feel, as I said, I feel very, I feel a great deal of sympathy for the person that's going to have to get around because it, um, it was a challenge to do it when it was, when it was the size it is now without uh, additional uh, communities coming into it. Yeah, it's a, a new name of Brecon, Radnor and Kumtawe is going to mm. be what we'll be faced with. But there's some interesting proposals, so I'll be interested to see where that goes. And, you know, I'm from that area and my mm. father doesn't stop telling me that uh, it was a long-term Labour constituency up until mm. boundary changes, which took out a lot of the heads of the valleys uh, communities in the in the 70s. But I'll bore you with that another time, Richard. No, so no, no, it's, it's your father's absolutely right, you know. Um, Tudor Watkins, if you speak to people of a certain age in this constituency and you mention the name Tudor Watkins, people remember him with a huge amount of affection for the work that he did here. And, of course, if you go to places like Bryn Mawr, the older generation would probably still describe themselves as being Breckenshire people. Uh, and, of course, they're not part of Breckenshire, haven't been part of Breckenshire for quite a while. But those... Uh, those memories uh, loom large, and um, yeah, so Tudor Watkins is still venerated here uh, in Brecon and Radnor as an excellent, excellent uh, representative. He is, he is. Um, which leads us to my final question is, you know, I don't think Labour will challenge in Brecon, Radnor and Kumtawe, but we're currently represented by in the first-past-the-post seats by two Conservatives, both uh, we've spoken to on the pod or on various other engagements we've had. Do you think, though, the, the seats both in Westminster and in the Senate are likely to come back to the Liberal Democrats in any future elections, Kirsty, or are we still too early from these kind of points to make any kind of judgment? I think elections in Brecon and Radnor will always be super competitive because the people of Brecon and Radnor, they get out and vote. Uh, and they take those responsibilities really, really seriously. And uh, so I think uh, whatever comes our way in terms of boundary changes, I am sure that that habit of going out and voting in BNR uh, will continue and it'll always be competitive. And that's, and that's great because I think uh, our politics would be stronger if there were more uh, competitive seats right the way across the the board it uh, it's it makes you work harder as a representative and i think uh whichever color you are uh i think uh, people who represent brecon and radnor uh, understand understand that well i think they've got very big shoes to fill because while you and i are different color rosette wearers in terms of parties i fully recognize how good a representative you were for brecon and radnor i know a lot of people uh, who've appreciated the work you put in over, what was it in total, 22 years? 22 years. So that's all of my 30s and all of my 40s and even crept into the middle, the tail end of my 20s. But can I just say, you know, it was a joy. I mean, don't get me wrong, the times when you feel it wasn't a joy, but for the vast majority of the times, it's a joy. And one of the wonderful things about representing this, this constituency is the diversity of the community. Because I know you're from the like the border side, are you not? You know, and that's a very different outlook on life and experience of life than if you're over on the west side in communities like Flutted, where you still hear Welsh speaking out on the street, or down in the Swansea Valley in the Abercrabs, you know, on the Cumtochs, where you hear Welsh speaking in the street, to to Knighton and Prestine, where people are much more likely to go to Birmingham than they ever are to come to Cardiff. So it's a fascinating place to represent because of the sheer diversity of the communities. And, you know, there's, we always laugh, don't we, when we say the Powys is different. Gosh, it was like a swear jar. Sometimes I think my colleagues in the assembly thought, if she gets up again and says Powys is different, but you can't lump Powys all together. Each, it's, each of their communities are special in their, in their own right. So I was very fortunate. I know more about drainage systems than I ever thought I would know. My mother always wanted me to be a lawyer and I think maybe I should have taken her advice. A law degree would have been a good grounding. Maybe a degree in social work would have been a good grounding, but it was a joy and uh, I'm very grateful 
to the opportunity that the people of Brecon and Radnor gave me and it became so much more than a job. It's where I got married and it's where I've raised my family and it's where I live now. So I'm very fortunate. Well, Kirsty, thank you very much for the time you spent to speak to us. Uh, we do appreciate it. As we close the podcast, I wonder if we could ask you to look forward to the next few years and suggest what you think we might see in Welsh politics, the Liberal Democrats in Wales, and whether we'll see maybe another Kirsty Williams in a parliament or other. Uh, well, I don't know about that. My mini-me, my middle daughter, keeps threatening me that she might want to pursue a career in Welsh politics, which half of me would be very proud of, half of me fills me with dread. I hope that what we can do is find some way of creating a political culture in Wales, which does something to address, which I think for me is the serious problem of ensuring that good people of all political persuasions see politics as an honourable profession. I believe it is still an honourable profession. And I hope that we can see in Wales the development of a culture that that means that the electorate trusts those people. And I think for me, that is the biggest challenge facing any political party at the moment is how can we bridge that gap that now exists? And how can we do something about the polarisation that we find in our society, which I think is, is something that we have got to, we've got to engage in because we've become quite polarised and there is a lack of trust and we need to do something about that. I couldn't agree more. I think that's exactly what we at the Hero team are trying to work on. So once again, thank you for your time. I, I We do appreciate it. If people want to hear more about it from you, do you have a preferred social media channel, Twitter or anything like that? They can follow you or get in touch? Oh, well, they can follow on Twitter. Yeah, it's at Kirsty underscore Williams. That's what it is. Thanks for listening to the Hero Life Pod. If you don't want to miss out, do follow us at Hero Life Pod on the socials. All of our pods are available in your podcast app of choice. And if you're able to, you can support the pod at www.patreon.com Hero Life Pod from just £3 a month. Thank you for listening to Hero Life. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.